Did Don Draper really buy the world a Coke? Did Tony Soprano really die or just order more onion rings? The finales of our favorite shows can make us argue, make us cry, and make us crazy. From Spotify and The Ringer, I'm Andy Greenwald, and this is Stick the Landing, a new podcast where we'll be telling the story of modern TV backwards, one fade out at a time. Find Stick the Landing on Wednesdays on the Prestige TV feed, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Rye and I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, thank God we speak fluent French, Sandy Greenwald! Look at you stacking refs. Yeah, man. Uh, Greenwald, great to see you. Great to see Kaya here on a Thursday. Uh, today we are going to be talking about the television show Monsieur Spade mm-hmm. on AMC. We are also going to be joined by the star of that television show, a little little up-and-coming actor named Clive Owen. Awesome. Uh, we were thrilled to be joined by Clive for a conversation about this series, about his career. So really, really kind of a little bucket list item. I don't, I mean, like for the pod, maybe not for yeah. life. No, I mean, I feel like because the first time Clive was on the pod, it was just me. Talking yeah. to him. Yes. So I feel like it was it was great that it you got a- It was your pod. It was not Hollywood Perspectives. It, it was great that you got a bucket too. Thanks, That's what I'm bud. saying. Everybody here gets a bucket. A little admin before we get started. Okay, so today, obviously, Monsieur mm-hmm. Spade, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, ripple effects of the Emmys, I think. And uh, the Emmys. And the Emmys. The, the Emmys. Um, on Sunday night, our True Detective episode two, season four, or Night mm-hmm. Country episode two recap episode will go out. On Thursday. One week from today. One week for today. We are going to be talking about both Fargo and The Curse mm-hmm. together in a sort of unified thematic way, mm. TBD, to, to be determined later. Kind of a... I feel like you deed it. I think I've determined it, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting moment in television. We're going to get into that on, on that I, Thursday show. I do want to say, I don't think I've ever received more uh, unprompted texts about an hour of television, at least in the last five or ten years, than I have about the curse finale. Just people from all walks of life, personal, professional, people who listen to the pod who don't. Yeah. Who just really have thoughts. You so, got a lot of people in your life that don't listen to this pod? I would say most people in my life. <laughs> most Like the close circle. Like your mechanic? <laughs> uh, you know, I have an electric car. So really what I have is a technician. Yeah, you got an electrician. Uh, if, uh, no, I, I feel like the, the closest people in my life you know, we've discussed this. They subscribe to Andy Plus. They can like just ask me what I think about shows. But then there's the diehards, like like you know, 
Tim Simons and Mallory Rubin who listen to the show. Yeah. Well, for my mechanic, he basically looks like Sam Shepard. I bring him I bring in my car. Incredibly handsome. We and both hot. light up darts. <laughs> we look Do you roll up your sleeves? We look under the hood and we're like, could be a spark plug. Mm-hmm. Could be. I was like, why don't you just fill her up and we'll see how it runs? You know? Fill the engine, like flood <laughs> the engine with gasoline. <laughs> Chris, uh, wait. If you opened the hood, before we get into the show, if you opened the hood of an automobile, uh-huh. let me call, let me be clear, a gas automobile, yes. like what would you drive? Um, can you do anything other than sort of stand and sort of look look as if you know? Like, can you point out things? Do I you can, have any working knowledge? Of the I know where the battery the is. And yeah, I know where the battery is. I can do the like gestures that Adam Driver does in Ferrari when he's explaining how air and water and gasoline and stuff like create mm-hmm. energy. Yeah. But other than that, no. It would be I, incredible if you rolled up into the auto body But this is what they shop. took from us. They took yeah. our ability, they they took away A, our ability to learn these things. This is who the woke mob And took then they also made it so that we have to get cars every few years, you know, because like who's, we can't fix them. Who's they? You know who. Oh yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> you know who. So wait, so you think they took that from us? Yeah, I think you and I, right now, mm-hmm. we would be in the prime of our car-fixing lives. If we would roll up sleeves, light up a cig, and just stare down. Have a, a, a 10.45 a.m. Budweiser as mm-hmm. we we maybe took the restrictor all, plate. <laughs> all I'm thinking about is the episode of Mad Men where like Don's in the garage with his little beer fridge. And then the next thing you know, he's just like out in the world. Yeah. And then he comes back with a dog and misses his kid's birthday. <laughs> That's what they took from us. That's, That's what they took from us. Can, I have a couple more admin notes. Oh, okay. I apologize. Let's get back to admin. Thanks. Um, you have a new podcast. Oh, thank you. Yes. It's called Stick the Landing. It's yeah. on the Prestige TV feed. Uh, your first episode went up. It's about Friday Night Lights. Yeah. You want to tell people a little bit about the show in case somehow they don't know? Yes. I'm. This was because you know, you've kind of you've replaced Justin Sales's pod as the the preview that's ahead of every single regular podcast. The trailer. That's terrifying. But luckily, I'm in good hands. Kaya cut it up real nice. She, she, it's just like every time I'm trying to find out about Caleb Williams versus Drake May, it's like, did Don Draper really buy the world of Coke? Oof. <laughs> Oof. See, because I I feel that deeply because whenever I listen to a podcast, I just hear John Jastrzemski being like, gambling! <laughs> every single time. And, you know. Has it worked? <laughs> I promise you it hasn't. So I'd like to apologize to everyone listening to the Ringer Podcast Network. Yeah, this is you know this is this is what I did during my summer strikeation, um, but I'm still doing it. Uh, this is a fun podcast where we investigate the finales of significant TV shows and talk about them through the lens of how we watched them at the time, what they meant in their moment, but also maybe looking back and seeing whether we our first emotional response was correct, yeah, how things have aged, and also maybe what we can learn about where TV is going now from watching them. And had a great time uh, doing Friday Night Lights as our first episode with Mallory Rubin. Peter Berg approved, just learned. Yeah. It's very nice. That's great. Um, and uh, this coming week, we've got... I shouldn't just, I Does Pete Berg know how I feel about Lone Survivor? I've never gotten a, a sort of pat on the back about that. He's been texting me about that <laughs> all morning, and it's getting a little weird. Okay. Um, he does have strong feelings about the gambling show, the Ringer gambling <laughs> show. He's, I believe, just, just probably from his persona, he's all in. Coming up this week, we've got... Uh, we're going to find out if Don Draper bought the world of Coke. Okay, good. Coming up this week is Mad Men. With Fenrock, right? With uh, Sean Fenrock Fennessy, the host of the podcast that has all of our best guests. The Big, the big picture. picture. Yeah. Um, which was really fun to do. And this was one that was particularly interesting to me because infamously, 
I didn't like the finale at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's good. Again, you know me. I'm nothing if not accountable. As the guy who told everyone that Barbie was going to kill Greta Gerwig's career, I am okay (laughs) sitting across from you. And admitting when I'm marginally you did that based wrong. Off the trailer, you I were hate like, career killer. Yeah, hated that trailer. Yeah, there'll be no Little Women too. <laughs> um, See, so, yeah, so that's been fun. Thank okay, you. great. Uh, I am probably going to appear on Sick the Landing. I am trying to book you. You are elusive. Last bit of it, admin, oh. is that you and I did the rewatchables. That's right. Yeah. We haven't done it in a long time. We did it with our buddy Zach Barron um, about uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Mm-hmm. It was released. Just moments after the Eagles uh, were ejected from planet Earth by Baker Mayfield and Tampa Bay Bucks. Which happened about 41 minutes after I ejected myself from the sports bar where I was sitting with you. Yeah. Do you want to talk about it? Nope. (laughs) Okay. Nope. Uh, Nope. So that is up. That was recorded uh, like the week prior. But as Bill mentions, um, Mm -hmm. accurate timing. That was diabolical. I had had fun doing that with you. I had fun. I I had fun doing it with you guys too. It, It was... Just like Machiavellian, it was really cruel. I Bill feel like Philadelphia sports fandom for mm-hmm. us is starting to become a little like it, this is my coin collection, and I don't want to show anybody it. It's like kind of embarrassing <laughs> that I do this. Uh, let's get into uh, can, before. We, can I just say one thing about other reason why I'm happy today? This is not admin. I just want to say, well, I, I thought it was Monday, so I'm doing great. <laughs> but Thursday afternoon in LA, the sun is out, which is nice. I know that's not the case everywhere in our frigid dust bowl of a country, mm-hmm. but. Um, I feel like the tide's turning. Looked around on the drive-in today to Spotify HQ. The Madam Web posters are up. Nature is healing. Oh, yeah? Do you, you, know? think that that, <laughs> you think that augurs good things for Hollywood? <laughs> I, 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 I tried to, when we sat down, call up the tagline that I saw, but I feel like maybe Safe Search is hiding it from me because mm-hmm. I don't want to pick on this movie because it's doomed. And because um, you're, you're, so, you're so good at I'm calling your shot. <laughs> yeah. But... This movie that is a side spinoff of the Dakota non- Johnson will have to sell her third Ohio home. <laughs> I'm worried about film. her. Yeah, no, but like it's a you know it's a side spinoff of Sony's. We can't show Spider Man in these movies. Spider Verse movies. Yeah, um, which have all routinely made a billion dollars. The Venom movies yeah. are quite successful. This Morbius erasure will not stand. Yeah. But okay, the tagline for it is, I believe, and I'm paraphrasing. It is in our world. It's not always a good thing to see the future. That's not the tagline. It's essentially the tagline. But what is the tagline? You can't look it up? Okay, so there's clearly some doubt. There's some doubting Thomases. Sure. In the studio that I didn't hallucinate this considering (laughs) I thought it was Monday and I've been up since 5.30. But I promise you, and I think that, you know, uh, readers can, readers, this is for this printed journal of a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Listeners can let us know what they see. I will look and I will take a picture of this. Kaya, maybe we'll do some research as we continue. The tagline, I promise you, is in this world, it's not good to see the future. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Which, by the way, (laughs) it's 2024. I don't disagree. You don't want to know. But you're on pins and needles for November. But my (laughs) thing is, my thing is, I think Nikki Haley's got a shot. My thing is, when uh, you see like a pithy tagline on a poster and it's not great, you have to understand that that was the best of 20 options. Sure. Yes. So yeah. I'd like to do a listener challenge to come up with the other 19 once we've confirmed what this one is. I think that we could ask ChatGPT this and mm-hmm. I think we would find that ChatGPT possibly wrote that tagline in the first place. Perhaps they made the movie. Sure. Okay. <laughs> All right, Andy, 
So we are late on the Emmys, which happened on Monday night while we were watching the Eagles. Um, it would have been nice to watch winners that and, night instead. And I, I find myself in an interesting place with award shows. As, okay. as you probably know, it's, it's not my favorite thing to do with my time, but it's like as soon as they're on and as soon as you start, start it rolling, you kind of find yourself sucked in by yeah. the spectacle. Um, I don't really have like a very strong political opinion about this in terms of like why I don't like it's just more like a I don't really like watching any cringy moments for some reason like with that stuff Weird. but b I also just like I find that the amount of time that we spend say talking about like who might win an Emmy is mm-hmm. disproportionate like it doesn't match what actually winds up getting remembered about television from any given year right so like right. I can't tell you who won the 2018 best comedy actor award but like i know what shows from 2018 that i liked do you know what i mean what shows i'm sure was was succession on then i don't know like i, I don't <laughs> remember anything about 2018 but my point is more that like i find that the emmys i've, I've often had like this sort of like strange relationship with the emmys as bill articulated in, in one of his new walk and talk videos that he's been posting online he had a fix the emmys video and he mm-hmm. was just like they should start making this basically splitting it by runtime of ep- of the episodes because like the Bear is not funny. You know, Succession is funny. Why is that drama? Why is this comedy? Etc. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a... Maybe the Emmys is ripe for a, a reboot. Mrs. Maisel won. Cleaned up in 2018, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah. One of my faves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I say all that to say mm-hmm. another reason why th- these are kind of like... These, these shows are, are now starting to... Now that obviously, this Emmys was in January. Usually, the Emmys are in, in uh, September, September, and this voting period ended at the normal time. And yeah. they've been sitting on these results for months. Yes, and so what you're seeing is when the Bear won all these awards at the Emmys, it was for the first season of the Bear, not for the second season of the Bear. But the Golden Globes that it won were for the second season. And the Golden Globes turned out to be quite a precursor for the Emmys because we essentially got the same experience. Yeah. Um. So the Bear and Succession, especially and Beef, all cleaning up. Most of the major awards, uh, Nisi Nash winning for Dahmer, I think was one of the things that didn't happen to the Globes that happened at the Emmys. Mm-hmm. But I was curious whether or not, you know, you had any major takeaways from the winners rather than the the show itself. Well, I do want to talk about the show itself, too, because I think there's a connection to be made between the show that they put on, which was a very pleasant, yeah, very to- totally entertaining competent. broadcast, yeah. and the winners. The first thing to say is... I don't think I have a single bone to pick with any any of the major winners at all. I, I did not see Dahmer, but I think Nisi Nash is really good. Yeah. So I'm cool with it. I think some people will probably flag um, Jennifer Coolidge winning again for White Lotus when was Ray Seahorn's last year of eligibility and but first nomination. I almost kind of appreciate Better Call, Better Call Saul going, like, what is it, 0 for 57 on Emmy nomination? 53. Nom- 53 on Emmy nominations? Yes, I think The Wire also was an 0 for famously. It kind of t- speaks to what I'm talking about here. I, well, I think it's... I think it's pretty interesting because the, generally people who are plugged in and do things like listen to this podcast, I think are excited and then potentially like Charlie Brown and the football continually disappointed that the Emmys are not like talent scouts highlighting the very best and the most exciting from a medium that at least until quite recently was constantly spilling out new ideas, new stories, new genres, new talents, new broadcasts, mm-hmm. that that doesn't match what people are expecting. And there were a couple years in there when things were really humming and there were new shows and new contenders every year and new stars coming to the small screen when the Emmys, and actually to a greater degree, I always feel like the Golden Globes were in front of the trends. 
right. were telling people. And, I, and there were a couple of years <clears> I remember getting on this mic and being like, look, yeah, Parks and Recreation didn't win, but look, Nick Offerman was recognized this year. And it's funny now caping up for an NBC sitcom that, well, everyone was like, sitcoms are in decline, was still getting millions of yeah, viewers of per week. But that felt significant at the time. What we're seeing now, I think, is two things happening in real time. One is a collective desire to return TV to its monocultural place in our country. On which the part it, of Hollywood? On the part of the quote-unquote industry, which mm-hmm. is a very large blanket term for the diverse membership of the TV Academy. It's focusing in on shows that you and I think were the best. I mean, the three winners of all of the awards, which were, to be clear, we're in our top five, HBO Succession, FX is the Bear, and Netflix is Beef, where all three were in each of our individual top fives. Yes. So recognizing those, I have, I think that's fantastic. I think it's great. I think it's deserved. Um, but it was very interesting to see the industry celebrating three shows as the end-all, be-all of the medium in this year during a broadcast that was, and this was partially because it was the 75th Emmys, but I thought it was actually more of a cry for help, to be honest, where of a broadcast that started with Anthony Anderson singing the Good Time song and then went into him singing the Facts of Life theme song and then him duetting with Travis Barker on the Miami Vice theme song. Uh-huh. And I was like, what percentage of people watching this show have any idea what the fuck he's talking about? And then I realized close to 100% because it only got 4 million viewers. Yes. So this collective desire to return, like Jack Donaghy once said, you know, he said 1997 through Science or Magic, but in this case, it would be 1985 through Science or Magic was very intense and very uh, tangible. Mm-hmm. The second piece about the same shows winning everything is more a reflection, I think, of something that we've been talking about on the podcast, which is there's too much stuff and seriously, how much are we really going to watch? Like, no one individually in Hollywood who has seen Better Call Saul is going to say that it's bad, is going to say that it's not deserving. But how many people have seen it or kept up with it? Yeah. And it's more not- almost more notable than saying Succession, The Bear, and Beef won everything is saying HBO, FX, Disney, and Netflix won everything. Sure. Because as we have been saying in different ways on the show, like they can still drive the needle. I mean, they can still move the needle and drive the culture. And other places can't. And as someone who loves Monsieur Spade, but absolutely ripped his own eyeballs out, shout out True Detective season two, <laughs> season four, that, during the commercials. That might happen in season two. That's well, fair. Actually. Because of the commercials that are on AMC. Oh, yeah. I get it. I get it. So I think there's a, a feeling of disappointment at the unanimity of the show, but I can understand it both from an industry level and a cultural level. I think it's it's a question of like, what do you go to these things for? Do you mm-hmm. go to these things for confirmation bias? In which case this did a very good job of doing that. You know, I mean, I think Bill has a point, as do many people, about whether or not the Bear, Barry, and Abbott Elementary and jury duty should be in the same category. You know, like whether or not they're doing the same things. Yeah, but I feel like, I get that, but I just feel like we say comedy and drama, but everyone understands it's 30 and 60 minutes. Sure. You know, because there are, and, and does that maybe unfair, is that more unfair to the comedies when they have to compete against, you know, a full spectrum show like the bear Mm -hmm. maybe but i also feel like we're a couple years now into this understanding of the malleability of these shapes and forms and i i get it yeah i mean i think that you you have to make some sort of categorical 
designations. I mean, obviously, there's also been some manipulation of the anthology or limited series thing in the past. This year, things, White Lotus went into the regular I mean, drama. It's it's also been very strongly suggested that Beef will be back. You know, for instance. Yes, they keep talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did what did what did my what did our guy Lee say? He was just like. Uh, I have to stare into the abyss and think about this, but very much like there are definitely more seasons. There are other here. paths, yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, he could make beef that's not with these two characters. That's I, about like another beef situation. I, yeah. I, oh, oh, like you mean sort of like the like the burger you ordered at the sports bar on Monday, <laughs> where you were like, "Give me the trappings of a burger, but I want it to be beyond." <laughs> you know how what that broke for you? So I Terribly, think I made the right you choice. You made the right choice. <laughs> that, that hot squish of an uncooked patty. Yeah. Delicious. I just wanted a veggie burger. Uh, you were smart to do that. Um, I I think uh, I don't want to sound like cynical about the recreation. You, you sound of, less cynical than I do. I my 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 question was like, would you rather have come out of this and had quote unquote upsets or shocks if that meant that the shows that you think are most deserving, which we admittedly do think Succession, The Bear, and Beef are the most deserving, probably. I mean, yeah, no. universal. No, no, you don't agree with that, or no? No, I agree with that, and I don't. No, like I, I, the well, first of all, we had a version of this conversation when the nominees were announced back when the show was going to be on in September, which is, boy, they kind of got it right. Like, it's really hard to argue with any of this. You know, would it, did I think Alexander Skarsgård could have won over Matthew McFadden? Sure. Matthew McFadden was better. Like, yeah. You know, and played it for many years. Like, it is weird to have no beef with really any of the awards. I mean, even even Culkin, you know what I mean? Like, I thought, not even Culkin, like, that was like, but I think that Roman has often been viewed as, A, as a supporting character. Yes. And B, as comic relief for that series. And then I thought that this award represented the full spectrum of what Kieran Culkin did with that character this season and what they show did with that character. I also feel, and this is more... one for best lead actor, by the way. This is more me... Um, and my taste than I think other people, because I don't mean to diminish things, but like if you look at, when I'm going through the nominees, if we, in, you know, the, the nominees for drama, uh, Succession and or season one, which was our favorite show of, the, of that year, which because the calendar year was a different year than the season of Succession, but within the same Emmy year, September to June, basically. Better Call Saul, The Crown, House of the Dragon, Last of Us, White Lotus, Yellow Jackets. It's just, there's no, qu- I mean, Andor is the only other show that I liked as much as Succession, mm-hmm. but Succession sh- should have won that. Like, I don't, it's hard to argue, you know? Yeah. It doesn't mean the other people weren't good. I think the thing that I enjoyed about the show were, and maybe it's telling that I'm pointing out the one broadcast win, but having, but Carol Burnett coming out, who, Carol Burnett, who was on the last few episodes of Better Call Saul and was great. Yeah. Giving the, a comedic leading actress award and be, giving a very funny opening speech and then giving the award to Quinta Brunson, who's very much deserving for Abbott Elementary, was very emotional about it. And she was emotional about it because one of her comedy gods, Carol Burnett, handed her this award on the Emmy stage. That's what these awards shows can yeah. do for us. And I thought that was really beautiful and moving. But I, I'm realizing as I'm saying it, that was a broadcast legend handing a sh- an award to a contemporary broadcast legend or whatever passes for a legend these days. Otherwise, and I know that, yes, there was a little tribute to The Sopranos, too, but that was more about it being the 25th anniversary of the show. Everything that was celebrated was from just a different cultural universe. It was from when, like young Anthony Anderson, when his mom, who was in the audience of the show, was out, we were all watching the same programs. Yeah. 
And that doesn't exist anymore. It, it is, it, it's like comparing stats from the dead ball era or whatever to contemporary baseball. It's like, it's, it's just a different sport. Sure. And the more they, in, they claim that it used to be one thing, I think it doesn't do well. It doesn't really reflect well on TV's current state because it's it's evolving into something else. I, right I don't want to step on the conversation that I want to have with you next week about Fargo and the Curse. Well, I thought that was TBD. Uh, and I and I also you know one of the sort of organizing ideas that I wanted to introduce was this rather viral David Chase interview that went around the last mm-hmm. couple of days about him saying like the 25 years that we're coming out of here are a blip in the history of television and that TV is now reverting back to form. Yep. And I have this kind of interesting relationship with television. I spend a lot of time every week watching it and talking about it and searching for good stuff to to talk about mm-hmm. um, with you. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think I have the same relationship with the medium that, say, Sean has with movies, mm-hmm. where it's like this is an important cultural institution in this country and in, in the world, and that there is a sacred communion that happens in the dark when we go into movie theaters and like have these experiences. And there's also all these examples of Hollywood movies being an example of like soft American power and influential across the world. And with TV, I kind of grew up always thinking TV was there to sell you stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. that this sort of couple of decades that, that we had, like David Chase is referring to, you know, the the sort of the worship like to you can't really worship TV to 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 me the way people like when they do the Oscars and they're like it's like Lawrence of Arabia through Nope yep. you know and like look at the continuum of 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 incredible movie moments and I I, I love television but I just I don't have that relationship well, to it the way that Anthony Anderson kind of was celebrating first of all I should say Anthony Anderson low key very good host sure very good job that's true. I mean, it, it, everything you said is true. They have very, very unique and often um, opposing roles, yeah. movies and TV, in our lives and in our culture. Um, we'll talk about this more next week. We're not going to step on it. But, like, it's important to remember The Messenger here, where David Chase created arguably the best TV show of all time, hates the medium. Right. Has always hated it. Yes. Has hated it from when he was growing up to when he was getting paid too much money, in his words, to write bad episodes of Kolchak the Night Stalker. So making Sopranos to finding out that his Sopranos movie was going to debut on TV because of a pandemic. Yeah. He hates it and resents it and thinks of it as a place just filthy with capitalism and compromise. Now, to that, I would say, have you gone to the multiplex recently? But broadly speaking, yeah, I think that um, the best, I mean, all collaborative, all art is collaborative and there's compromise in it. But like, you know, you know, you you love when I reference other podcasts I listen to. Um, and on on the Ringer Gambling Show last week, I thought <laughs> JJ made a really compelling point. No, uh, I was listening to Greta Gerwig, who's so great in long form interviews, talking to Marin. And it's and, just an amazing that she still has a career. I mean, <laughs> I mean, after I I listen more as like a act of like a mea culpa. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? To be like, what can I learn from this person who I misjudged so terribly? And she took it well. You know, my my criticism. Yeah. I thought. Um, no, but she was talking about like the, her different movies and the connection between them, but how each time she's like, I want to see the world and make a, a different world. I want to, I want a different light, different lens, do something, create an entire universe that makes sense for what's inside of me and the story and everything. And I think TV pilots like, often have that optimism. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, the 
part of the, the era that Chase is referring to is an era that gave us, you know, like perfect little closed circuit gems, of which maybe Beef season one is among them. Like yeah. it was a fully realized thing. I just think the, the experience of Beef was different than our experience of The Sopranos. You know, our experience of yes. Beef. I mean, within David Chase's decade and a two decade blip or whatever he's talking about, there's an even smaller blip of a feeling of collective audience, you know? Like, yes. And I think that, you know, for as much as the audience numbers of decades past dwarf what's happening now, I mean, and we can talk about that all day long, there is a, a kind of a sensation that the sort of minutes spent watching or hours watched Netflix stats mm-hmm. just don't hit the same as the Nielsen number of 23 million people tuned into Game of Thrones that night, you know, to watch this epical moment. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's as much for me as, as it is about like, what kind of shows are or are not being made. It has as much to do with the experience of television. And I think the Emmys were trying to remind us of the experience as much as the shows. And that's why they reunited the cast of Martin and the cast of Cheers and rebuilt the sets yeah. and something. And yeah, is it does it do something to see Ted Danson and John Ratzenberger and George Wendt and Kelsey Grammer and Reese Horn Reese, not different Re, Re Perlman. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. Uh, all in the same spot? Like, of course it does. I'm not made of stone. It's wonderful. And what you're responding to, though, isn't, you know, the the episode where Sam reads the news and raps. You're responding to is like, those are my friends. Sure. And my friends are together again, which is a profoundly TV thing. Yeah. And not necessarily a movie thing. It's also not necessarily a Stephen Young and Ali Wong thing. It is a The Bear thing, mm-hmm. which is why I think people feel parasocially engaged in that show and in its success in a different way, which is why in it, I saw as many times as I saw like certain acceptance speeches on Instagram or whatever, I mostly saw the camera on IO while Jeremy wins his award. Sure. Because people are like, they love each other in real life too. Right. That's part of it. Right. Um, and also a special shout out to friend of the pod, Chris Storer, who won many awards very deserving, couldn't be there due to sickness. And I don't know if he's happier or sad. Like, do you think he's sad that he didn't get to walk into Cheers because they're the ones who gave him his awards? (laughs) Ted Danson was behind the bar and announced him as the winner. So theoretically, (laughs) he would have gone on stage and accepted his award. I'm sure that would have been Cheers. Cool, yeah. Or just be too too surreal. Or maybe he had like a... Same game parlay going on the Bucks Eagles and wasn't even watching. (laughs) He could have talked. Also, that's true. Yeah. Because I feel like I could, like, I posted a picture of some food I got at a Taiwanese supermarket on Monday afternoon. And he texted me, like, fire emoji. And I was like, are you looking at food pics from the red carpet? He's like, bro, I'm watching Steelers. Um, Uh, The other thing he missed, though, was an opportunity to talk politics with Kelsey Grammer and John Ratzenberger. (laughs) That would have been chill. I see those guys at my mechanics a lot. Do you? Are they talking about? If you know what I'm saying. Um, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about Mr. Spade. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? 
To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, we're back, Andy, and we're going to talk a little bit about the first episode of Mr. Spade before we get into our interview with Clive Owen. Fair to say that we are over the moon for this. I love this show. Yeah. Um, I wrote out, I like kind of for my own edification, Hmm. wrote out my attempt at a recap of this episode. Mm. And I will say it was a time-consuming exercise Mm -hmm. because uh, Scott Frank and Tom Fontana, who have uh, two of the best resumes in film and television as far as writers go, it was also this... This was executive produced by Barry Levinson. I don't know if you caught that in the credits. I think that's because he and Tom Fontana still produce everything So they together. have. Okay. And then Scott Frank has directed all of these episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice that Tom and Scott alternate top billing? I didn't. Of, of the writing of each episode? I did not. That's sweet. That's, we should we should do that, by the way. We, I'll, we'll talk after. Should we do that on Stick the Landing or on The Watch? You're the executive <laughs> producer of Stick the Landing in that it's all um, under your umbrella. So the reason why I did this exercise of writing this out, like for True Detective, I'll do it just for 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 fun and also because True Detective has like Easter eggs and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. For this, I was doing it as much as an exercise uh, just to remind myself of what happened in the first episode because I watched it a couple of weeks ago. And then as I was doing it, I was like, this is so fascinating to see what Scott and Tom... Scott Frank and Tom Fontana are doing with my relationship or my idea of like Dashiell Hammett, but specifically the Maltese Falcon, which mm-hmm. is the 1941 adaptation um, by John Huston is a f- sort of one of the most famous detective movies ever made. It's a novel by Dashiell Hammett. It features this detective, Sam Spade. And in the Monsieur Spade television show, Sam Spade has sort of washed up in the South of France in 1955 with a ward, with a char- like a child that, that this is when this is what really piqued your interest. That he's he's responsible for. He's he's bringing this kid Teresa from Istanbul, where her mother Bridget O'Shaughnessy was living, and who, and, who died in and a who train died, derailment, and br- is bringing her to uh, back to like her hometown, or not to her hometown, but back to the south of France, where her father is supposed to be living. Mm-hmm. So. When you start writing out what happens in this episode, you realize very quickly that you were in the zone that uh, William Faulkner was in when he was trying to decipher what happens in The Big Sleep when he was adapting Raymond Chandler's novel for right. the for the famous movie version of it with Bogart, where you're just like, I'm upside down in this. Like, there's so much information, there's so much dense, there's such a density of plotting and double crossing and you know cross cross relationships. And then you kind of realize when you stick your head above water, that's not really the point. Correct. Yeah. I wonder whether you feel that about Monsieur Spade because Monsieur Spade is not, it's dealing with real historical events in some ways. And it's dealing with different characters' relationships to the French resistance during World War II, to the Algerian War in the 50s and 60s. 
And I was kind of curious whether you found yourself feeling like I need to get on top mm-hmm. of this plot or I just don't mind letting it wash over me and have the great dialogue and the great scenery. Well, famously, we've said this many times when we talk about our favorite genre books, especially in the detective crime genre, plot is not what you're there for. You're there to sink into something. And what you in your sort of you're making your own you're swimming your own lane mm-hmm. through the tides that the author is throwing at you. I love the show so deeply because it is, at least through one episode, a near-perfect marriage of immaculate vibes and profound craft. Yeah. And you don't necessarily notice both at the same time. What I mean is, I watched this first episode once and immediately drawn in by Clive Owen's version, his performance, his interpretation of Sam Spade, the scenery, the possibility of the world, Mm -hmm. the sense that we are somehow familiar and deeply unfamiliar. We are doing something that is at once established and archetypal, but also new. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm lost in the fog of, you know, having little coffees with erudite police chiefs and smoking too many cigarettes and then not smoking cigarettes and plucking the feathers off your own perfect chicken and then also getting shot at. Like all of these things, like it's just, I just sailed through it. Yeah, I watched the first episode a second time and I was like, what did I watch the first time? Because I have very little working memory of any of the mechanisms here. Sure. And that's when I realized that, you know, that is not a bug. That is a feature. That is what Scott Frank has made his career doing is giving you the things that you don't even realize you need to stay afloat. We keep referencing and we'll hopefully get to reference it with him at some point, the New Yorker profile of him, where it just talks about how he is one of one when it comes to fixing scripts. Mm-hmm. And that realization that while I'm swimming around in my already labored metaphor, there is a strong, strong foundation underneath this pool. The currents are very well designed and controlled. And you are safe not fully knowing what's going on because there are a lot more episodes to go. And we are being led at the correct pace to get through it. I th- I agree with you. I And I, I think a good moment I'm trying to think of like illustrative moments from this first episode, which we're going to spoil if you, you know, if you're listening to this. I hope that you've checked it out by now. It's on AMC. A good example of this would be the scene when in the so the show starts out. It's in 1955 for the first 10 or 12 minutes. It's mm-hmm. set in 1955. Sam Spade has arrived in uh, Bozules in in the south of France. It's a convent town, a small town with a with a convent in it. Mm-hmm. And um, he's brought this girl, Teresa, from Istanbul. He's trying to reunite her with her father. If he does so, he'll get a handsome payment. Um, the girl, Teresa, is the daughter of a woman named Bridget O'Shaughnessy. If you are familiar with the Maltese Falcon, Bridget O'Shaughnessy is sort of the femme fatale of Maltese Falcon. And at the end of that film, Sam Spade sends her down for for the murder of his partner, Miles Archer. And even though he's basically in love with her, mm-hmm. he's like, somebody's got to pay for this. It's like, it's it establishes this idea that there is a code that Sam Spade lives by, even if it seems like he's incredibly cynical and incredibly practical and pragmatic, that there is an overarching moral or ethical code that he subscribes to that would, and he has to, sort of lose out here as much as anybody else because he's sending away the woman he loves because she murdered his partner. There's also this wild chase for one of the great, I don't even know if we would call it MacGuffins, but sort of um, symbols of greed in any fiction, I would say, which is this enameled, jeweled statuette 
that mm-hmm. people are chasing all over the globe from Hong Kong to San Francisco to Istanbul, again, Constantinople in that movie. That is basically like the, it's, it's the gold mine. It's the pot at the, of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's the thing that everybody mm-hmm. is chasing. It's the get-rich-quick scheme. And it attracts all these con men. I, I don't know if the Maltese Falcon will ever have any impact on Monsieur Spade, but I guess it's just worth throwing out there that that is what, what kind of mm-hmm. brings Bridget O'Shaughnessy into Sam Spade's life and then sends her out of it. And after about 12 minutes of a very efficient, you know, of of very efficient like mystery storytelling and and, and, and classic noir banter yeah, and a lot of banter. We jump ahead eight years and this guy is now gone from fish out of water, new new in town stranger to a poisson to a member of 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 this small French town's society. Essentially, mm-hmm. he's like a business owner. He has been married and then widowed, and is now living on the vineyard of his ex of his late wife Gabrielle that's how you do it and the economy with which it moves through so many very significant moments not only in the history of this town but in the history of France is breathtaking the moment i wanted to highlight is a really small one but it speaks to what you were saying before where sam is having coffee in a cafe outside with the chief of police in this small town who he has got a sort of adversarial but begrudgingly respectful uh, relationship with. Partly because of the policeman's personality, but also because of his fluent English. Yeah. So they're sitting outside in this cafe and, you know, it's great. Everybody's offering him cigarettes all the time and he's not taking them because he's got emphysema and he's trying to avoid a, a pretty bad outcome for himself, Sam Spade is. And a monk comes up to them. Yeah. And now the first time you watch it, you're just kind of like, a beggar or a monk has come up. Maybe he's got leprosy. He's got this big robe on. You can't really see him. And um, Sam gives the guy money. The police chief waves him away and basically threatens him and tells him to get out of there. And the chief, kind of, the, the monk, kind of tries to throw like a curse on him mm-hmm. a little bit. But it's a real, it seems like a throwaway moment. Mm-hmm. But... It turns out that this monk is going to be a huge character in this in this story. It turns out that he's telling you right away like that this guy is walking around, this guy who winds up essentially, you know, at least being put on the scene of a horrific murder at the end of the episode is an important character, but he's just like passing through this cafe. Mm-hmm. It's a throwaway moment in a conversation between these two guys, and it's just such good writing. It's such good writing to be like you have to pay attention to everything. But I will, I will hold your hand and walk you to water here. Yeah, I think that that's the, it, it's it's craft on such a level that you don't notice the seams. He's guiding you, even if you don't notice. And it's such a, I, I mean, I find as a viewer, I find that so reassuring. Yeah, you can miss things, but you can also reward yourself with multiple viewings. And to the larger point, like every single thing is intentional, and to build something that way, to build something that is this dense, where every character, every every frame is is uh, purposeful and potentially weighted, but also you can just sit back. I, I, I and you have room for Sam Spade to be dropping little one liners yeah. and having little rat a tat dialogue. Usually, you get one or the other. Usually, you get lost in the sauce of like I'm just doing a noir, and he's going to wear a hat, and he's going to be clever you're not thinking about the larger machinery that you're building around it. And I can't help but think of, again, the intentionality of 
Bozul, the town, which I know nothing about, other than it looks very beautiful and it's French, and you could just enjoy that. Or you could Google the town and see that one of the first things that comes up is that this is a French town on the edge of a giant hole. Mm -hmm. That it is uh, geographically completely unique um, because it, the town was built on the edge of a giant hole yeah. because of the nature of the bedrock there. And the idea that it goes, something is deeper, that there's a, an emptiness in the side of this, of course. And do they Sims. have the new Madam Web posters there, or is that... Only on the bedrock layer, <laughs> not in the town. So you actually have to rappel down okay. to see them. Um, yeah, I, it's this is pleasurable to yeah. know this, because, because, again, there's a lot of... And we praise things. I don't mean to say there's only one way to do a story. Like, sometimes when people are things that are flashier and people are trying things and throwing stuff at you, like that can be fun. Yeah. But this is a totally different vibe that could be, I think, misconstrued by some as, because it is, this is a show that sets its own tempo right away. And that might be, you know, that might be off-putting or might not feel like other things you've been watching. It might feel genteel. I didn't find it slow, necessarily. I don't find it slow either, but I, I think it is slow developing. You know, it is it is unfolding. And I Enjoy that. It, I think it, that, it, that generally speaking, in a lot of contemporary mysteries, especially limited series, I find that those opening episodes, but the first episode typically, I mean, we saw this with True Detective, we saw this with Mayor of Easttown, you see it with a lot of stuff where it's more establishment characters. They establish characters in Monsieur Spade, but they move through a lot of story. Mm -hmm. By the 15th minute, you realize that Sam and his late wife, Gabrielle, meet under these sort of like uh, funky circumstances where he's been in a car accident and she comes and picks him up. Also, literally lightning strikes. Yes. He, he, he would not have met her had he not been driving at that exact moment when lightning knocked a tree branch down blocking the road during a massive storm. Yes. And then you realize that she's got a proposition for him, that she wants him to help her... Uh, get out of a blackmail situation that's being perpetrated by Teresa's actual biological father, this guy, Philippe, that we haven't met yet. Who is not, who is a bad actor, a cad of some sort. Yes. And is not in town. And this is 1955 still. And then we gracefully just sort of maneuver into eight years into the future and find out that she's passed away. We we jump to 1963 and he's at the the cemetery uh, at her gravestone and we slowly then learn over the course of the episode she's passed away he's inherited all this there are people in town who are not crazy about that they feel like they deserve x y or z from the estate there's a guy living on the estate who's doing paintings a young british man well, he shows up he shows up uh we learn that that Sam Spade loves to swim naked. Yeah. That he has still been looking out for Teresa in some regards by being a benefactor to the convent that he has sent her to go live at or that she has been sent to go live at. Mm -hmm. But they seem to have a somewhat antagonistic relationship now where she's kind of moody and off by herself as a teenager now and mm -hmm. not really talking to him when he comes to talk to the mother superior. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the episode, we meet, you know, a nightclub, Chanteuse owner and her alcoholic husband and the police chief and his assistant. And there's also a huge ensemble of characters. But the ultimate thing, the twist that happens is at the end, the nuns are executed by someone we don't know who. Mm -hmm. And Teresa has, you know, has, has escaped. So And Philippe is back. And Philippe is back, right. Um, and that's all really dense for a first episode. There's a lot of plot. 
one thing that I want to keep an eye on is how what so basically you know, there, there's classic noir, Maltese Falcon. And then there's the word that gets thrown around a lot and is used to describe this show, neo-noir, like uh-huh. an updated, a modern version of a noir. This is sort of an in-betweener in that it is a completely new take on a noir icon, maybe the noir icon. It's terroir noir. Holy shit, look at you. Yeah. Would you like to co-host a podcast about finales with me? You are the best at this. <laughs> there's just, until we get to the end. That's good. The the last and 10 minutes of the episode, I don't think that there's much in the dark at all. It's no, beautiful but, French countryside. It's daytime noir. But it's also in the past. Yeah. You know, so it's a period piece twice over, but the periods in question are later than the period of the classic noir. Yes. And I was really struck by um, when in our conversation with Clive that he talks about how indebted he is and his performance is to Bogart. You know, that there was not a sense of we're going to do something completely new. There was a sense of continuity that we want to honor it and we want to reimagine it. And so that's just, for me, that's just something to keep an eye on. It's like, what does the idea of reimagining a noir mean to people that I respect so highly. Yeah. Like Scott Frank and Tom Fontana and Clive Owen. Because it is not as simple as, I don't mean to throw a stray here, but it's not like Ryan Johnson doing Brick. Right. You know, which has its strengths. I don't mean, but in the sense of it's not just like, what would a detective be in 2024? Well, and then, well, I think that the idea in Brick is that you basically transpose the dialect and the, 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 vi- the, the, vibe the tempo mm-hmm. of noir detective filmmaking but transpose it into like, uh, what is it, early 2000s high school. For this, one of the great pleasures of it, strangely, is the way that it stymies its own genre leanings. Mm -hmm. And by which I mean, one of the great joys of reading detective fiction, really good detective fiction, is the language. Well, language is a really, it's a pressure point in this show because Spade can speak French, but not great. Mm -hmm. Some people can speak English, or most people can speak English in the show, but probably not as well as they speak French. And yes, he he gets off 10, 15, 20 one-liners, but there's a different cadence to the writing and to the language in the show. There's also a different cadence, or not a different cadence. I would say, I'm the jury's still out. I would say, watch the filmic language, because Scott didn't just write this with Tom Fontana. He directs every episode. And I was noticing that at least by to my super layman's eyes there's a lot of classic hollywood filmmaking and camera movement in it like when he's driving and the rain slashing across the headlights of the car and the camera moves up to frame him behind the wheel there's the shot that i think is the still image when you select the show on amc app which is him with the trunk open looking into the car or into the hood in this case i I don't know i don't go to the same mechanic as you (laughs) my car has a front to be honest with you so that is telling us something, and it might seem uh, traditional or it might seem conservative. And I'm curious about where that goes, moves, what happens with that going forward. And that also makes me think again why this is an interesting Sunday night pairing with True Detective, which we'll be talking about um, every you know Sunday night or Monday, yeah. which is doing something, I mean, it's not fair to compare them. Anyone who dives into a genre like noir or neo-noir brings their own passions and what interests them the most. But what I've been struck by so far, and we'll talk about this more on the next show, is Issa Lopez's camera work and the framing seems very contemporary, contemporary TV even. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that, she is doing Lynch vibes. 
but she's not making the rest of the show like the Lynch vibes. They just sort of happen in the same frame as the other stuff. So there's an interesting collision between what might be her style and the influences that, whereas so far, visually, filmically with a camera, it feels like Scott Frank is paying homage and I'm curious to see how that changes as he's as the story goes forward. I am too. If uh, it changes. Yeah, I mean, we will obviously be hitting the show as much as we possibly can over the coming can, weeks. Can I also just say before we get into it, Clive Owen, great guest. Great guest. We love talking to him. He was so he was such a treat. So why don't we get into our interview with Clive Owen, right? Yeah, I think Kai, did we get did we end up going right into the interview? Yeah, we just roll right into it, some uh, Liverpool talk. It's great because you guys, I think you can imagine if I can set the scene, it's just like a, just a regular weekday morning in LA and I'm in the kitchen and Chris is in his house this on is Zoom. This over Zoom, yeah. On Zoom and we're like, Clive is joining, we're great. And like this dashing motherfucker wearing a blazer and like this like <laughs> hushed, dusky uh-huh. English evening light appears. And I was just like, I am underdressed for this podcast. <laughs> but it turns out Chris was appropriately dressed. I wore a Liverpool sweatshirt because Clive Owen is a Liverpool fan, as I am, am I. But interestingly, it was a pretty indie it was. Jersey, yes. which is disgusting. So, yes. And it was great. I'm so uh, happy that he joined us. Uh, thanks to Kaya for producing. We'll be back on Sunday night to talk with each other about True Detective Night Country, episode two. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick... From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I wore the LFC sweatshirt for you today, but you did you oh did top God. me with this ble- blazer. But it's green and black. I know. I got it at Anfield, it's, though. It's like the third oh, away kit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Wow. Are you a Liverpool fan? <laughs> I am, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You're going to get on great. Don't worry. It's all um, good. Okay, we can the, get started. Did you say the third away kit? It's like kind of like a, it's like a third strip. It's just like it's different than yeah, yeah the, the usual home away stuff. I've never uh-uh. seen it before. That's how rare it is. That's right. Especially <laughs> whether or not this was bootleg. When I say I bought it outside of Anfield, it's like some guy sold it to me. <laughs> There's a non-zero chance that he's bluffing. Like, I yeah, think right. we should all accept that. <laughs> um, Clive Owen, thank you so much for joining us today on The Watch. Andy and I uh, are already obsessed with Mr. Spade. It's one of our favorite things we've seen so far this young year. Let's just talk a little bit about what drew you to the project. Although to me and Andy, it's like kind of obvious. I mean, you get to work with Scott Frank, you get to interrogate this amazing character, but can you give us a little bit of background about how Scott approached you and, and, and what happened to, to make you sign on to do this? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd even met Scott before, but I certainly knew of him and I'd read stuff that he'd written and had been a huge fan. I read, he did that series, Godless, and I remember many years ago, there was a film script of that that was going around that was one of the best things I ever read. And I'd always held him in the highest regard. And he's very, 
like he's very good friends with Steven Soderbergh and Tony Gilroy, who I know both of them really well. And I've just always held him in high regard. And then I got a call saying that he wanted him and Tom Fontana wanted to talk to me about a project and they jumped on the phone and they pitched me. There was no script then. It was just, uh, they pitched me the idea. We want to do this Sam Spade. We want to sort of jump ahead, put it in France. Blah, blah, blah. And I have a, a small original Maltese Falcon poster on the wall. I just took a shot of it and sent it to him. <laughs> said, you've come to the right guy. Like, um, so it, it was a gift because anybody had come to me and talked to me about the possibility of doing Sam Spade, I'd have been interested. But the fact that it was someone of his caliber was, was really exciting. I also love the positive energy that Scott put out into the world with this project because we had him on this podcast a few years ago and he announced to us that he would be doing Sam Spade in France with you. Uh, I think it was unsold. There may have not been a script, but I feel like he operates like the secret where he just says it. (laughs) He enthusiastically gets you on board, which is the opposite of how I think a lot of dream projects work in Hollywood. (laughs) No, he was great. I had an absolute joy working with him. Yeah, really, really great. Did you find, um, you know, going through your filmography, Clive, you obviously worked with a lot of virtuosic directors um, from Cuaron to Rodriguez, and, and you mentioned Steven Soderbergh. Is it a different experience working with a virtuosic writer like Scott? I, he obviously is an accomplished director himself now as well, but his approach to character and building this thing is, I would imagine, different from some of the people you've worked with in the past who take a very visual approach to everything that they make. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point. And it's... it's um it's a real blessing when you work with, I mean, Scott is a really, really top director as well. So he's not, you know, but, but he comes from writing and it's just, it's almost like you lose that sort of, there's a, there's a sort of filter step there that when a director doesn't write and they refer to the writer and the writer comes back and the actor, like there's, it, it just takes time and it's a sort of process. It's a filtering process when you've got the brains in front of you and you sit there and you discuss an idea, he can either, which he can do, he can either fix it super quickly there in front of you and go, well, that sorts that. Or he goes, yep, got that, know what you're talking about. And it comes back. So that it's a joy. It just makes the whole, the whole thing leaner, really. It's a much more direct way of working. You know, I, let's talk a little bit about Sam Spade because, you know, initially going into this, I was obviously really excited for it, but he seems almost like a character where the most iconic performance of the character, in this case, Humphrey Bogart in Maltese Falcon, is almost like George Smiley, where you have this Alec Guinness performance that towers above almost the fictional character himself. But then Gary Oldman comes along and plays Smiley to great acclaim in in the Tinker Tailor remake. And now, you know, I I have to admit, like when I think of Sam Spade, your face pops up. For you, was that intimidating? It's only because it's recent. It's yeah, it's, it's probably recency recent. bias. I know. Uh, was there any? I don't know if it, intimidation is the right word or trepidation about walking in those footsteps for you. Weirdly, no. It's odd that um, because um, I am a huge Bogart fan. Like Casablanca is my all-time favorite film. It's a cliche, but it's a film I could watch weekly and still, like you know, totally love it and enjoy it and because we were taking uh, having uh, many years ago i was i was working with a studio and had the rights to play um chandler's marlow and we never got a script that was really good enough and it sort of just drifted away but 
when you attack sort of noir generally, I, th- I think that the, the trouble is is that we're so used to all the big cliches and that it can not get boring, but just we're too familiar with it. We know the tropes. We know what it is. And even if you do it beautifully, brilliantly, it's kind of... So the fact that Scott lifted it and put it in totally, you know, in, in a different environment, fish out of water, south of France, 20 years later, different guy trying to live a quieter life. But the origins of the guy have still got to be that guy. And for me, I'm English, I'm playing American, and I'm surrounded by primarily French actors speaking French. So I've got to somehow, I've got to ground it in some way and have something for myself that puts me in the right place and puts me, even though we're playing an older spade, it's still got to be the guy that came from there. So I totally embraced the, the Bogart of it all because it was a big help in terms of rhythm, in terms of accent, in terms of, you know, I I actually, I lifted all of the dialogue from Casablanca and Maltese Falcon, only Bogart's, not the other characters, not anybody speaking back to him, just his dialogue. And that was my kind of centering every day. Mm-hmm. I went, right, just to get into the vibe, because, you know, if, if, if I'm, you know, shooting in San Francisco and everybody's doing the sort of period noir thing, then you sort of, but because I was totally sort of in an alien environment, it felt really important to ground it. And that's what I did. And I wasn't, I didn't go there going, Oh, I need to put my own mark on this. I used it as an excuse to really enjoy and, and look at actors of that period. And, you know, what, what made it different? What, what was that period acting? And actually, Bogart would stand up today if you put him in a movie tomorrow. I mean, those films are 80 years old and some actors don't, they don't stand that test of time. They look mannered or they're doing a particular kind of thing that doesn't stand up. Bogart, you put him in a movie tomorrow, it would be believable. I'm curious about your approach to sort of archetypes like this. And you've already begun to express it so beautifully. And, and, and that idea of Bogart playing today is really interesting to me because I think that historically the idea of a private eye is used by authors in the genre that we're talking about as kind of a blunt instrument that can penetrate all layers of a closed society. And because it's kind of a blunt instrument, they crack wise and they crack jaws, but they never break. And I feel like one of the things that we look for in more contemporary protagonists is their own, for lack of a better word, trauma or pain or their internal life. And I wondered if that was an ongoing conversation for you and your process in this role, because as you said, you're playing something that is familiar to us and that f- serves a function, but not only has Scott updated it, you are bringing a modern sensibility to the performance throughout as well. We are, but I would argue that I wanted to embrace what it was rather than look for the new version because mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, it would have interested me less if Sam Spade bears his soul, gets emotional, <laughs> finds his weak spot, becomes the modern day Sam Spade, you know, more neurotic, more yeah. <laughs> like sensitive. Like that's not for me why I want to do it. I want to do it because those kind of iconic characters and, you know, they're restrained. They, they hold things tight. You know what the reason they endure is because they have this moral compass that we all love, which is they have to do the right thing and they're tough and they're mean, but we know deep down that decent people who are trying to do the right thing, and will you know go out of their way to do that? And I, I wanted to celebrate that. And I also, you know, when going back and, and studying 
Bogart a lot in all of his films, what you realize is that he never milks anything. He, you think he's laconic and laid back, but he's super fast with his dialogue. When he has speeches, they're actually super nimble, dexterous, like he's really, really like, you know, properly skilled. And, but he makes it all look so easy. And it was something really like I really opened up and I called Scott and I said, you know, it seems to me it's going to be key that we don't hang about, that we really don't, that Scott is, you know, loves the genre, wrote brilliantly for it. The rhythms and intonations were perfect. And it became really important not to overindulge, like get through it, let the good writing sing. And similarly, that was Bogart's style of acting of, uh, of his time. Just one, one other question about this idea of playing archetypes. I know that, um, and I know you know that early in your career, after Croupier, people were fan casting you as Bond almost immediately. And that was a part of every interview you did, I'm sure. I'm happy to indulge you again. I'm sure you're thrilled to talk about this. Um, but very quickly, you established, whether that was a real thing or not in your world, you established yourself as a more adventurous actor in choosing parts that were against the archetype and against your own, uh, what you, what people perceived you to be. I wonder what that conversation is like for you creatively now, because I was interested to hear that you were considering Marlowe at one point. Here you are playing Sam Spade. What is your relationship to these things that people expect from you, maybe because of your your jawline or some of your earlier roles uh, versus... Um, yeah, I, I hope it's yourself. more than my jawline. <laughs> By the way, this is an audio podcast, but it's a great job. Yeah. It is. We're all you're, in envy. You're maintaining, seriously. You look great. I think that's I think that's really what I was wanted to ask. And, you know. <laughs> um, no, it is an interesting question because I you know, even pre-Croupier, way before that, before things opened up in America for me, I did a lot of TV in the UK. I did this sort of hit TV show called The Chancer who was a very confident and cocky guy. And then I was offered a lot of lead TV stuff. And I remember really, really early on, even as things had opened up, that I didn't want to get trapped into sort of, you know, hey, is a mainstream TV thing. And this small film that this really good writer-director, Stephen Podikoff, made called Close My Eyes, which was about an incestuous relationship between a brother and sister with Alan Rickman playing the husband and Saskia Reeves playing the sister. And in the middle of this sort of primetime TV popularity, I really went after this film because I thought it was so cool, so interesting. Tabloids, you know, Clive Owen and incest shocker, like because I was <laughs> primed. And, and, but it was a very beautifully and sensitively made film. But, um, but that was an instinct even back then don't fall into that like repeating thing. Don't like, I think because I trained in the theater, my gut instinct, and that was my first love was to play lots of different parts. That was the joy. That's why I wanted to do it. I want to play lots of different parts. I don't want to hone something and get good at it and then go, right, just keep working that and we'll be good. Like that's not, and if you look at it, you look at the, the, the career as a whole and it's not a planned, it's just different, you know, they're all choices. They're all like, yeah, I think I'll do that. Or yeah, I'll go for that. It's very, very varied. And I often quite like to be scared. I like to take something on that's a little scary because, you know, I think that's where, where you learn the most. And also what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, a career, you know, I, you know, I'll be bad. I've been bad before. It's no big deal. It's like, you just have to pick yourself up and go for something else. And like, 
but that's the way to grow and that's also what interests me it's like i go great i can go and explore this or great i can go and explore that and that's where that comes from i think uh, one of my favorite things about the series so far is that it's sending me down these rabbit holes, historical rabbit holes to find, you know, read about the French resistance, read about the Algerian war. Are you a history buff? And was the historical kind of density and um, sort of just like the way Scott obviously interpolates like these historical movements into the show? Was that an, a, a, a sort of an attraction for you? It was because it just grounds it because, you know, if we're in the quintessential cute French village in the 60s and everything, you know, we're sort of in this thing. But to bring in something real, something relevant, to make the backdrop of this story something that, you know, was was very important at that time. And, you know, it, it just it's another sort of layer. And it's what Scott's very, very good at is just, you know, in this, you know, little quintessential French town you're going to get to know the characters and then you're going to get to know their stories and that everybody is interconnected in some way but everybody's carrying something and the beauty I suppose of television and being able to do six hours of it you can take your time and get into it and get underneath the, the lives of all these people and the backdrop to the whole thing yeah it's just so incredible to consider Sam Spade actually existing at a time when the French New Wave is happening since the French New Wave <laughs> were so influenced by those genre movies of the time, you know, the subtle time jump that happens in the first episode going from 55, I believe, to 63. Uh, did you modulate your performance in this really incredible way? I mean, you're still sort of in the same era of this character's life. Maybe if you look back and he was like, well, that was the time that I was in France, but you're different in the 55 scenes than you are in the early 60s. What were some of the things that you did in your head and just kind of like maybe physically to, to change that up a little bit? Well, I, I, I'm glad you noticed that, honestly, because I think, you know, no, seriously, because I think some people wouldn't, because I did, I did, I, I roughed him up. He's he's a guy who's just arrived from, he's just left the, you know, the Maltese Falcon and he's staggered yeah. into France with a kid and he's that tough, hard-boiled classic. And, you know, and when we meet him later in the, in the 60s, he, there, he, there is a softening. There is a, there is an older guy trying to live a quieter life, but in those, early flashbacks he's the tough wise guy that's come into town to go right i've got you know i've been given a job i want to get paid for it and this is what i'm doing and there is a different energy and that you know that i'm also helped and that you know scott's dialogue you know helps that as well that also was you know helped me do that 55 spade would never bring his own bag to market Never. He would expect <laughs> he would expect a fruit vendor to provide that for him. That's right. Reusable bags weren't that big back my, then. You know? my, my word to Scott, our running gag throughout the whole thing is: I go up to him and just go, "I've been duped. I've been totally duped. Like I get no coat, I get no hat, I don't you have a gun. Smoking, I yeah. No. So like, yeah, what is this? This is bullshit." I said, I, I, "I'm going off to play Marlow or something else. Okay, this isn't satisfying enough." <laughs> a, a, a moment ago, Clive, you talked about um, you know your willingness to or your desire, even in your career, to be a little bit afraid to take chances and try new things. And and over the last few years, we've seen you you know, uh, do a lot of different accent work, whether it's modulations of a British accent or modulations of an American accent, or even doing Bill Clinton, which is a famous accent and a famous voice. Mm. Um, out of all of those jobs was the most challenging doing an American accent, speaking French badly. 
because we Americans do it very well. It comes very naturally to us. But I, I wonder if that was more of a reach. No, the French was harder than I thought. I, they, you know, they asked me somebody. Uh, there was some big meeting when somebody says, "Oh, and how's your French? Is it good?" And I went, "It will be." And I, I hadn't, did, I didn't do any French. I hadn't done any French. Didn't do it at school, and I ended up going. Well, I'll learn French. I've got time. I'm going to learn French, and I got a school teacher. And we zoomed regularly, and then I realised after hours and hours of this that I was sort of treading water, and I was learning an awful lot of stuff that was just not applicable. I don't, I'm not going to pass an exam. I'm not going to, you know, I don't, I'm not going to be tested on the grammar. I'm not going to improvise in French. So, so I, I quickly changed tact, and I, I, I learned it phonetically. I got somebody French to help me learn all the sounds like I would an accent. Um, made sure that I knew the scenes inside out, so I knew what everybody was saying and when they were talking to me, and I learned it as as you know in that way, just in terms of, of vocal phonetics. Speaking of France, though, the because I'm obsessed with the idea of getting a chance to work in the south of France for eight weeks. And I, I oh, thought this, it was, was, this was yeah, it was tough. It was yeah. really tough. That's the thing. <laughs> I thought I, I really admired Chris's entry. The first question to you was, was it Scott Frank? Was it Sam Spade that attracted you to this part? And I was like, I think you just saw the log line. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, is that like he gets to go to the south of France. He gets to go to the south of France, and then he has to have a prostate exam. Exactly. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. That came Clive first. didn't. Okay, it's same <laughs> south of France. I'm in, and uh, we're going to do a show. <laughs> do you feel like doing the uh, the French language work to the extent that you did, and and being in in France? Do you think that there was a even infinitesimal improvement of the chances of Liverpool getting Kylian Mbappe by like this sort of genuine, <laughs> like sort of you opening yourself up to French culture in this way? Do you think that the I was payback... literally talk? I was talking about this last night. Kylian Mbappe for me is the best player on the planet at the moment. I don't think he'll go to Liverpool. I think his mother's go to a Real huge Madrid. Liverpool fan. It could she happen. is, but come on, like he'll go to Real Madrid. He'll go to Real Madrid. I'm sure he will. I mean, I adore him. I think he's a, such a stunning player. The idea of him at Liverpool would be like dreamland, but you know, um, I'm not sure it'll happen. My my sincere question is: I you know I was watching the Maltese Falcon again, uh, just to sort of get refresh my memory before we did this interview. And I always love how those, especially the detective Moors from back then, the, the Chandler's and the Hammett adaptations, you get about 20 minutes in, you think you got a handle on it. And then all of a sudden you, you're upside down and you can't remember, you know, and it's like that famous Faulkner asks Chandler who does it at the end. And Chandler says, I don't know. How important is it for you as the actor, as the performer to, can you keep all the narrative threads straight? Can you keep your head above the mystery and kind of know the things maybe that the audience doesn't know? Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, always very, it's very important to me to have a, a clear oversight through everything. And that, when I talk, it, if you talk to sort of directors that I work with, I'm not, I'm not somebody who's just totally consumed with what I'm doing and my, it's the whole picture and how I fit into it is also really important and i really i really treasure getting into a director's head beforehand i hate doing it on the set i like i always like to have had that work done i don't like lots of talking on the set although i think that's the time where you go in and now we've got to execute we've got to do it but i i will bug a director a lot pre-shooting anything to make sure as long you know 
if there's anything unclear or to get their intention. Now, sometimes with a writer like Scott, there's less of this talking because it's clear. The one thing, the huge strength, like, you know, and the thing I adored about the Queen's Gambit, the clarity of storytelling, the clarity of intent, where he puts a camera, how he moves the story forward, it's super clear. And when, when you get that, it's really satisfying, I think, especially when someone's very smart with it. So you sit there and it's like, it's so enjoyable because you go, I'm in really good hands here. And they're taking me through this story with a clarity of intent and purpose that is super satisfying. And similarly with Spade, you get those scripts. We didn't need too many discussions. We, t- we tweak dialogue and we, you know, t- tweak some things in it. But I didn't need that much because I got it. I looked at it. I read it. I went, I see what he's doing there. Great. And I'll, I'll you know, and the challenge of doing a job like this is, is living up to the good writing. The writing was there for me. You know, if I messed it up, that was my fault. Clive, my, my guess is that it feels different from inside of an actor's career um, than it does from us watching it from the outside. But from the outside, it's been such a pleasure for us as fans of your work to see all the different things that you've been able to do in, you know, in this streaming age over the last few years, or even going back to The Nick, which is one of our favorite shows of the century thus far. I mean, we adored it. Um, but just even in the last few in the very last few years, whether it's the Bill Clinton part that I referenced or recently you got to play a tech billionaire in Iceland and murder at the end of the world, and now you get to play Sam Spade. How do you look at the buffet of choices that may or may not be available <laughs> to you in this era? What floats your boat right now? And what do you, in as much as an actor can choose and determine what roles are coming to you, what is inspiring well, I, you? I, I never, I don't know until it's inspired me. I'm not one of the, I don't have a plan. I'm not going to, I'm looking for a great 10 part mm-hmm. series. Or I, now I want to do a movie in this shot. It's really to do with what comes and it, and then it, whether it ignites me or not. Now, you know, I'm glad you love the Nick because I'm super proud of that show. And I think Soderbergh did a phenomenal job. One of the best ensemble casts you could dream of, you know, it was like everyone, I rated everyone so highly and I thought Steven Soderbergh executed it so beautifully. And I remember like, you know, I wasn't thinking of doing TV. I hadn't done TV for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then he called me up. He sent me the first script. I was in a trailer shooting something else. I read it during that lunch. I sat there and was like, well, what is this? I finished it and I called him before lunch was over. Said, I'm in. <laughs> like it, that could have been a 90-minute movie. It could have been a 20-hour series. It could have been a play. Like After reading that and, and knowing it was in his hands, of like, you know, I, I was like, that is hugely exciting. And that's a lot of my decisions about whether it ignites you, whether it triggers you when when they came to me about playing clinton at first i was like that's crazy why would anyone why has anyone even thought of that that's crazy and it was a definite no in my head and then something started to happen i started to look at him i started to think and then suddenly i go you know what i I can see something in this there could be something like and and that's how i choose everything it's about whether sometimes you read things and it ignites the thing that was there at the very beginning, why you got into it, why you act, why, you, you know, things just ignite and you go, oh, I want to do this. There's something I feel I can do in this. And that is how, you know, there's been no more shaping than that, really. Well, we can see why you you took to to this part and to this 
to the show because it's so great. Clive, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, thanks for making us your spade. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You guys can take your Liverpool chat off. Right. I'll, I'll sign off. And... <laughs> so let's do an hour on the transfer window. Exactly. <laughs> if you ever want to do a half an hour on discussing <laughs> Liverpool, you come to me. I'll, I'll do it. Fantastic. <laughs> take care. Thank you, Clive. Take care. All right. Cheers. <laughs>